Hey everyone, before we get into episode number 93 with Kara Karsik, uh, I just wanted to acknowledge that this is the third episode in a row that I recorded before we went into our distance learning mode. And so this one in particular, uh, you actually hear us talking in the first week of March about uh, wondering about closings and that sort of thing. And I think it's an interesting uh, little time capsule of what life was like in the first week of March um, as we started noticing things closing and a shifting landscape. But uh, start Starting in May, hopefully I'll get check in with some teachers and find out how they've been doing around the country. And so before we get there, I hope you enjoyed this little time capsule episode, episode number 93 of Life of the School. Hello and welcome to Life of the School, episode 93. Hello, my name is Aaron Matthew, and I'm a biology teacher at Acton-Boxborough Regional High School in Massachusetts. Each episode of Life of the School, I sit down and talk to another life science teacher and ask them, how do they get in the classroom? What are they currently working on? And what are their hopes for the future? This episode, I sit down with Kara Pekarsik. Kara teaches biology, zoology, and marine science at North Quincy High School in Quincy, Massachusetts. In addition to her work in the classroom, she also serves as the school's advisor for the National Honor Society chapter at NQHS. Outside of the classroom, Kara has a passion for science. In 2016, she was a polar tech educator on an Antarctic expedition focusing on factors limiting photosynthetic diatom growth in the Southern Ocean. Kara was named the 2018 Massachusetts Teacher of the Year and is currently serving as an educator ambassador for WGBH PBS Learning Media. You can follow Kara on Twitter at Ms. Pekarsik. Uh, we'll have to spell that out for you. P E K A R C I K. Uh, welcome, Kara. Hi, thank you, Aaron. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to uh, speak with you today. Yeah, good morning. As we are recording this in our in in March, although this is going to be an April episode, um, I'm curious how uh, how evergreen this episode is going to be with uh, what's going on with coronavirus right now. <laughs> uh, yes, I, you know it, it, when you were asking about when look thinking about resources or articles that like have been popping up, I was like, wow, what what isn't popping up right now in terms of life science, you know, and 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 how interesting this discussion will be probably in just a few weeks from now, like you were saying. Yeah, the the virology, um, and I am a, if I think people who know me know me, I'm as a, I'm a micro and virology nerd. And I, I was telling some of my students just this past week that um, the book and the band played on uh, by Randy Schultz, which documents the beginning of the AIDS outbreak, is probably the reason I went into science. Like, mm the the epidemiology associated with how the CDC was behaving and how they tracked down this unknown. Um, and it, that was who I related to. It was the scientists who were asking the questions and trying to figure out where this thing came from and why were these people dying. And it really was the scientific exploration of tracking down this new pandemic that those were the people who I related to in that story. And that was what really made me interested in science to begin with, um, you know, back in the late eighties. So, uh, this type of thing, as I think my wife, my wife is sort of joking that, uh, as somebody with asthma who is in a higher risk 
uh, you know, than other people. Um, I am enjoying this pandemic from a like fascination standpoint. Like we're watching a pandemic in real real time, and um, and I'm I feel both like oh it's terrible, people are getting sick, but also like oh look at these numbers and look how it's spreading and look at the conditions and yeah I I've been uh, deeply uh, engrossed in it. I would say probably the best way of describing it. Yeah, I think I think that's one of the the interesting things about loving science is that you know no matter what what is happening it, it, sometimes it's horrible and sometimes it's really interesting at the same time and that's that's kind of the balance that we have to find I think even in front of our students, you know, like I, I find some things so fascinating and I, especially like human anatomy and stuff. And I'm talking all about this stuff. And then I look and I see a kid like about to pass out because I've just been talking about things that, you know, they can't handle. And, and so I, I think there's, there's definitely that mix of passion and interest and then like realizing, Oh boy, this could really, this could really go somewhere that isn't, isn't very positive. So yeah. that's really cool though, about your story. Um, I am on the opposite end of that. Obviously, I'm a megafauna kind of uh, person. <laughs> um, my background is in marine science. And so I did a lot of um, large whale studies prior to teaching. And so for me, it's this is interesting, but I don't I don't know enough to about it to I think not that I don't fully understand what's going on, but that I, I want to learn more so that I can help my students understand what's going on. So it's really interesting. So last night you weren't like Google searching like uh, RT PCR uh, primers, um, <laughs> which I actually found myself doing the other day. <laughs> I, you know, I can't say that that's been on my Google search recently, um, but there's, you know, maybe someday it will be, but right now, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's definitely where I, where I come from from at this. Um, yeah, and I think we'll we'll get back into it. But we also realized that um, as we're this is recorded before an STA, and that's one of those things that I have in my mind is like what's going to happen um, uh -huh. as they they have just canceled you know South by Southwest last week and um, and Empower and is another one they've just canceled, which is a teaching conference. So which which one was that? Empower, I think it's oh, empowered yeah. or empower. So it's something like that. But I, you know, a lot of the teachers that I follow are are starting to, okay, check that one off the list. Can't go to that one. So I, I'm curious myself because I'm, I'm really, I'm looking forward to NSTA this year um, just because it's local and I have easy access to um, the convention center, but um, yeah, you know. Yeah. yeah. And, and they just canceled uh, uh, EB, uh, the, I think it's called EB uh, 2020, which is the uh, experimental biology one, which is out in San Diego, uh, which, oh. Yeah, and I and I saw that one when they were in Boston back in God, it was like 2011, 2012 they had it in Boston in the same spot that they have NSTA. Okay. Um and they they travel around and they go someplace. I think it's going to be back in Boston in the next couple of years, but uh that one just got canceled last week too because I'm on their um I'm on their email list because I attended, you know, a handful of years ago. Yeah. So yeah. so so yeah, I mean this is is definitely a case where you look at the the number of people um and I also do think about it a little differently. I teach with a, a, a colleague who had a, a kidney transplant. Um, and it was, it's a great story, but he's immunocompromised because he had a kidney transplant. So he's on, you know, some suppression. He's a perfectly healthy guy, walk around. I think, you know, anybody who saw him would know it. But he knows, even though he's on any younger cohort, he has some immunocompromised, uh, you know, he's in an immunocompromised situation. Yeah. And therefore, he's got to be knowledgeable. And he's planning on going to NSTA. But like, does he go? And as I said, I have... Um, you know, I'm, I'm not a young guy anymore. Um, you know, I'm in my mid to late forties and I have chronic asthma. And while people in their forties don't 
really get that sick from this. People who are in their 40s who have severe asthma can. Um, And so I'm going to monitor, even if they don't cancel NSTA, as much as I'm looking forward to it and going it, I'm going to realistically think about, you know, what's going on and what are the numbers like and what are the the cases and what are the odds that somebody is going to come to this place and spread that and do I go in now? For me, it's not as big a deal. I'm only scheduled to go in on the Saturday right now um, Mm -hmm. because I went to NABT earlier this year and I didn't want to take sub days away from (laughs) other people. (laughs) Yes. Uh, um, And I want my colleagues to go to this when it's close. Um, And uh, I'm a little bit more active in NABT at this point than NSTA. Uh, So I just, especially when it comes so close. So for me, you know, it would be like, oh, well, my school district paid for me to go to one day. Um, I can easily justify it from a health standpoint if I decide not to go. Um, and that would be the only reason I wouldn't go. You know, it's not like right, I'm right. going to bl- blow it off. And, <laughs> and I, uh, I think that's an, a, a valid way of looking at it. You know, I, I, I keep trying to emphasize to my students that, you know, we're not in a, a point of panic yet. It would just, you know, you need to be vigilant and think about, you know, how does this affect me and, and what kind of choices do I need to make? And, and you know, we're doing that. Um, on a regular basis, I think with anything. And this is just, I think, heightening our awareness of that. Yeah. And I've also told my students, they'll be fine. Um, Like that, generally speaking, you know, this is not causing anything other than, you know, illness in people under the age of 20. The, the, the death rate has been like virtually zero uh, for the younger cohort, unless you have some, you know, pre-existing chronic condition, in which case you're more vigilant in general. So Mm -hmm. um, yeah. All right. Well, that was a, uh, that was our little virology kickoff, which I could start all my episodes with a little virology kickoff. And as you said, like, it's different when you're in it, because for me, like, um, I think I, I enjoy talking about virology in general. I listen to a, a podcast called This Week in Virology every week <laughs> where they do a deep dive nerding out on viruses. Um, and I've been doing that for like years because they've been putting them out for years. Uh, but I don't think it's on everybody's front of mind. And so now like you walk into a room and people are actually having questions about virology. And I'm like, ooh, we want to talk about <laughs> spike proteins. <laughs> people are talking about spike proteins. This never happens. Let's talk about spike proteins. And I have all a lot to contribute to those conversations. So <laughs> that's awesome. And I think your students have an advantage in that sense too. So um, because they're, you know, they're, they're not getting the like hyped up crazy information that's coming from all angles. You can help them kind of sift through that and, and give them some of the real science behind virology. So I think that's great. Yeah. It's a lot of, it's for me, as I said, it's a, it is a, a balancing act though. Cause I, I, I do have to temper the excitement a little bit, you know? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's get into the questions. And you you preluded, previewed it a little bit as we were getting into it, um, started talking about our background. But um, I do know that you were this, you know, large animal, you know, marine biologist uh, out studying whales in the ocean. But so so how did you become a science teacher? What did you do before, you know, teaching and how did that lead you into the classroom? Sure. Well, I, um, I mean, since I think I was born, I've always loved science. There's never been a time that I haven't been into science. And um, when I went to college, I I had two things I wanted to do. One was to be a forensic pathologist and the other was to be a um, marine biologist, which, I mean, those things are totally different. Um, and I started out going to med school, like wanting to go to med school. And then I said, you know, my passion is the ocean. That's what I want to do. And and so um, I, I found that to be really exciting and I enjoyed doing it. I studied um, large whales off the coast of New England, um, their behaviors. I, I did a uh, 
uh, worked with um, different research projects on tagging these whales and looking at their underwater behaviors. And so oftentimes people will ask me that same question, like, how do you go from that to being a science teacher? And quite honestly, it came down to, I think, some of the challenges that most scientists uh, come across is where do I go from where I'm at? So I, yeah, I had my undergraduate degree and was just sort of wondering, where am I going? I was at working for a nonprofit um, and uh, didn't, there, there was really nowhere up for me to go unless I pursued my PhD um, and I wasn't financially able to do that. So I said, well, you know, I work on whale watch boats. I talk to the public all the time. People seem to enjoy um, how I transfer information. Um, I could give this teaching thing a shot. And that that really is how it came out of my mouth. And I, and I will tell you that that is no longer how I feel about it. But um, I really thought like, yeah, I'll just go teach for a little bit. And like, that'll be great. So um, in Massachusetts, you know, you can have, you can be a career changer and go through the process and, and earn your preliminary license. And that's what I did um, and was lucky enough to be hired by someone who thought that my research background would really, really bring forth um, some cool stuff in the classroom. And she hired me and, and I remember vividly laughing at her, like, you do know, I have no idea what I'm doing. Right. <laughs> she was like, it'll be okay. And I said, all right. Um, and so I started that first day, the way, um, North Quincy is set up, we have students come a freshman Wednesday and then Thursday and Friday, everyone comes to school that first week. And Thursday and Friday, I was, yeah, everything's great. You know, I introduced myself. We went over the syllabus, you know, the standard like early teacher stuff that you learn, like just go over the syllabus the first day. And then Friday afternoon came and I was like, uh oh, <laughs> I have 178 days left to go. What am I going to do? Um, and I realized very quickly that my sort of thoughts of like, I'll just teach, um, I, I realized very quickly how difficult. Um, this job was and um, how much effort I was going to have to put in to learn how to become a great teacher. Um, not that I didn't understand how to transmit information to my students or help them learn this information, but I knew nothing about pedagogy. I knew nothing about, you know, classroom management. All I knew was science. And so um, it, it quickly became evident that I needed some help with those things. And once I started looking into that, um, I fell in love with teaching and I, I don't regret one single moment. I, I miss my whales, but I, I don't regret a single moment of not being out on the water with them. Wow. So, so now, now the natural question for me, as you're saying that is like, okay, so what did you do between like that Friday afternoon and that next Tuesday? Cause it was probably a holiday weekend or next Monday if it was in August. So, so like, what did you do? Cause you didn't quit because uh, by the way, we've had that teacher, we've hired that teacher before in my career. I've worked in schools where that's happened. Yeah. Um, where people come in and then, you know, maybe not that first week, but like two, three weeks in, they go, oh my God, I, I didn't anticipate all of these other things in there. So um, I, I think of my own professional experience and the colleagues that have supported me and um, now the network that I exist outside the school. So so what were those resources that, that helped you, as we sometimes say, survive those early days as you were sorting it out and figuring it out? Right. So um, I did a lot of crying that weekend. That's one thing I did a lot of. Um, and I, I'm not lying. I really... No. I was really panicked. Um, but what, you know, I, I didn't know a lot of my colleagues yet because I just started there. So I just met these people, but I knew that I needed their help and I am 
forever grateful for my colleagues for just basically taking me under their wing and saying, here's what you're going to do. Like, you don't need to reinvent the wheel right now. Here's, here's what you can use in your classroom. And then let's talk and let's meet and let's, let's learn from each other about how to, how to deal with some of the stuff that you might be struggling with. So, um, it really was, things were kind of handed to me that first year. And then I, as I got into the groove, I started realizing like, oh, I, you know, I can see where this is going. I I can see how this will work in my classroom or how it won't. And I, I kind of relaxed a little bit. And I think that was the really important part was, um, I relaxed and sort of realized that it, this is possible to do. I just need to be open to the help and I need to ask for that help and really listen instead of, I, I think a lot of times we fall into that, like, oh yeah, that's great advice, but that's, you know, I know what I'm doing. Um, and, and I did not know what I was doing. So I, I really had to listen. Um, and that's a humbling experience because, you know, when you've been working in a field and you feel pretty confident in your science capabilities to come in and, and just not really feel confident in anything that you're doing, um, can really knock you for a loop. So, um, I'm super thankful that I had supportive uh, colleagues with me to help out. Um, and, and then I just started reading things, you know, I just, I found a lot of, a lot of resources that could help and, and just tried different things. My, my early students, man, if I, if I think back to what I was like as a teacher then versus what I'm like as a teacher now, like I sometimes feel bad for those students because Mm -hmm. I was so, I think I had this mindset of like when I was a student, you know, which is a long time ago. And it was just this, you know, everybody sat in rows, you know, those pictures you always see. And and it wasn't as interactive as I think um, schools are now. And, and I think I, I kind of went with that because that's what I knew. And it wasn't until I started learning about many different ways of teaching science um, that my skills took off and my students benefited from it. Yeah. So it sounds like from this time frame that it probably, there wasn't a, the same kind of mentoring um, infrastructure that they're now they've put into the state of Massachusetts the last few years. Um, And it sounds a lot like, I mean, I was um, assigned a district mentor Mm -hmm. um, uh, when I started. I can remember one of the jobs I took early in my career. I was assigned a district mentor um, at one of those schools who I had no common periods with, who was a guy who like showed up like that at first bell and was gone at last bell and never spoke to me. So, but there was no real, like the mentoring program really didn't exist, but I had other colleagues that I could talk to. So was it a case where there wasn't really the the strong program or was the mentoring program set up just to tell you like district rules and things like that? Or yeah, I, I think, I think you're, I think you're really talking about what it was like. So this was, you know, almost 15 years ago. And so yeah. it, it definitely wasn't set up in, in a style that benefited um, either person, I think, either the mentor or the mentee. And so I was given a a mentor and um, I kind of the same experience, you know, they showed up right when they needed to and left when they could. And um, there was very little check-in. It was just that sort of like, oh, make sure you take your attendance at this time and do that. And a lot of the district mandated stuff. Um, And now I've seen how our district has expanded that mentor program quite a bit. Um, I've been fortunate enough to speak at some of their meetings and uh, it look there, there definitely is common planning. Now there's time set aside. There's the opportunity um, for mentees to watch, not just their mentors teach, but go to other classes They you know, they provide coverage for those, for those teachers. Um, and I think it's really expanded um, with the help also of, you know, the state um, department of ed uh, just 
just expanding what needs to happen because those first few years are are just so challenging and you really need as much support as you can get. Yeah. And I, I always wonder about that. And I, I've talked to a handful of teachers and I, I sometimes wonder like, wow, how blissfully stupid I was when I was like 22 to 26 that I didn't even realize like how much I was figuring out on my own and how I what all these skills I had, like I found mentors, I made mentors, mm -hmm. but there was no program that was there. And I can now understand why at the time, like so many teachers were quitting um, right. that weren't getting through because like literally if you did not have the, the, the skill set to create your own mentoring system, again, mm -hmm. bef really before a robust internet <laughs> and um, no set robust program there, like I, that's a skill set that I had was to build a network around me to support me. Um, I think you really did set teachers up, young teachers in particular, um, to struggle through those years, almost like it was like a, a unofficial hazing program um, <laughs> that, that existed. Yes. yes. And it's, it's a scary thought. I mean, I think back on it and I just think how stressful it was and, you know, I'm glad I stayed, but um, the, the, the desire to not, to not do it was strong because it, it was, it was so um, isolating. Um, if you allowed it to be being in that mm -hmm. classroom can be so isolating um, unless you seek out um, your colleagues and some of that help um, that you need. And, and nowadays with, you know, um, you've got Twitter, you've got all these social media outlets where you can meet and chat with and learn from other people in a very different way. Um, so you have now your in-person mentors and you can also have mentors from across the country and across the world, which I think um, is, is really an amazing uh, thing to have available to young and older teachers who are still trying to, you know, change their craft and, and improve themselves all the time. Yeah, and I think that that's also a very culturally more accepting thing now as a teacher. Um, I when I think of what it what, what I envisioned a teacher to be when I first came in, I I did feel like I was supposed to be in charge and know all the stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and so, as you said before, it was very humbling to ask for help because you're supposed to be the person who's in front of the room and in charge. Yeah. And if that's supposed to be the rules of that, this game that we're playing with the kids, that like, how do you then admit you don't know things? And um, that it was it was hard to wear both of those hats. Whereas now, like, I regularly tell my kids, I don't know stuff or like, that's a great question. Oh, I'm gonna have to go look this up. And I think that, um, you know, as you said, you relaxed and got more comfortable. And I certainly can remember those days of sort of when I my persona in the classroom really started to shift as I became relaxed. Mm -hmm that that changed. Um, and like now, like there's days where I, I like, you know, I'm checking out things or reading things that I know nothing about, um, just cause I'm curious. And sometimes they lead to some things that go into the classroom. And sometimes it's just like, what are these people over here talking about? Like, you know, people are talking about these UN sustainable, sustainable development goals. And I, I heard like, I've read a side thing on that and I was seeing something on Twitter. And so like, I literally just like lurked in one of the online chats to sort of see like, what are they talking about? What does this mean? Who are these people? And I just like sat there and I watched the chat just to sort of like, like get a little taste of what it was like, cause I don't even know what this would mean for my classroom. And I'd read some pages and stuff like that, but I wanted to hear what teachers were saying. And it's just so easy to do now. Like yeah. you can just find people having a conversation about something and, and glean in that where again, 20 years ago, that was you know, not a possibility. 
Absolutely. And I, I think it's important for our students to see that in us as well. So like you said, I'm often telling them, I don't know the answer. And they look at you like, how can you not know? And even, I even had a student the other day say, well, aren't you a science teacher? It's like, yeah, do you know what science means? Like, that is such, like, I can't possibly, even in the field that I am dedicated to, I can't possibly know everything. And so I'll say to them, like, you know, okay, let's both look this up tonight and see what we find and then have a discussion about it tomorrow. And they kind of look like, huh, I'm so, I don't want to tell you just, I'm not going to make something up just because I, I don't want to look like I don't know something. Like, it's okay not to know something. It's okay to be curious. And I, I think that's important to model for them. Yeah, I often frame it under the guides of, well, this is what I, this would be my hypothesis. And these are the reasons why I'm coming up with it. Mm -hmm. So like, mm -hmm. even if I don't know, I'll be like, you know, that's a great question. I'm not really sure. But if it's like this thing or like this thing, I think it's going to follow this. And again, that's more like, you know, following in the rules of when it's in my wheelhouse. So like if they're asking me about whales, I'll be like, yeah, I just don't know. Uh, yeah. but, if, <laughs> but if they're talking to me about like bacteria, like I could, <laughs> like I can spout infinitum about, you know, bacteria and antibiotics and that sort of stuff and molecular stuff. But, um, but yeah, I, I often will say that and then I'll make a note and I'll say, let me look that up. I'll get back to you on that. And, mm -hmm. you know, um, and then sometimes I'll email them a journal article or a science news article or something like that. Yeah. Um, with some backup, uh, because but those things are all bring it up in class. Um, especially if it's relevant to the broader conversation that we're having. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, that's great. All right. So on the guise of both learning and being in your comfort zone, uh, you were one of the Polar Tech educators um, a couple years ago. And I've seen this uh, I've seen this a few times. I think I want to say that I saw at uh, the AAAS meeting that was in Boston like six or seven years ago, the day before they do the AAAS, they do a teacher, uh, they do an educator researcher day. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that the polar tech people were there at one of the, uh, round tables that I was at. Cause I was, I was there for BioBuilder as we had mentioned off air a little bit about BioBuilder, Um, and I was presenting with Natalie, but the polar tech educators were there too. So I had actually seen that, um, seen their talk and heard their spiel a little bit, but, uh, I'm curious about like, how did you connect back into that community? And then what was that like for you, um, as a teacher and maybe as a former, uh, studier of marine mammals, uh, for, for you to go and be a polar tech educator? Sure. So um, I found out about um, polar trek when I was, uh, I was actually still working in the field of whale biology while I was teaching. So still a few years into the summer, my summer's off, um, I was still out doing some of the research projects that I had been a part of. And I, you know, I just sort of offhandedly said like, oh, I don't know, you know, when this project is over, I don't know how I'm still going to be able to be involved in research. And um, one of the researchers I was working with said, oh, have you ever heard of Polar Track? And I was like, no, I haven't. And so I started looking into it. And the program is an amazing, amazing program. So they send teachers into the field with researchers in either the Arctic or the Antarctic. And I immediately was drawn to this because Antarctica is a place that I have just, I, I've thought about all of my life. Um, I've always wanted to go and, you know, everybody's like, why would you want to go there? And it just, it just seems like such an amazing location. There are animals there that you can't see anywhere else in the world. Like, you know, it's pristine. It's, it's just, I couldn't wait to get there. And I always thought when I started teaching that I had kind of lost that opportunity because maybe I could have gotten there as a whale researcher, but why would I ever get there as a teacher? Um, and so when I started reading about this opportunity, I was like, I am applying and I will apply until, I, you know, until I can no longer apply anymore. And so 
um, the way they set this up, they, you know, sort of, they vet the the first round of applications, but then the researchers themselves actually make the choice for who's going to be traveling with them. And so I was very fortunate. I think I applied seven times. I think that was the total number um, for there are generally 12 to 14 um, positions each year. It just depends on the number of researchers that are looking for educators. Um, and that then is split between, you know, the Arctic and the Antarctic. So for me, um, I was, I kept putting Antarctic or Antarctic, Antarctica, um, the, as my sole place that I wanted to go. Um, and so I really limited my chances every year by doing that, but it was really something that I felt strongly that that's what I wanted to participate in. Um, and had interviewed with researchers a few times, but it just didn't have that connection. Um, and when I met with the researchers who I eventually worked with, it was immediate that there was a connection. And I think that's important for um, the Polar Trek program kind of really emphasizes that there should be a connection. You're going to spend, you know, four to six weeks with these people. You probably want to have a connection with them. Um, so what I didn't realize at the time as we were interviewing, and it became more clear as we were going through the interview with the researchers that I worked with, um, was that they were studying diatoms <laughs> and <laughs> trace metal chemistry. And I immediately, like the smile left my face because I was like, that is my least favorite thing on earth. Like I, I, chemistry is like evil to me and I understand it's important. Sorry, chemistry teachers. I understand it's important, but it's difficult it's a difficult subject for me. And so I was really struggling with like, what am I going to do with this experience? I'm going to go the whole way to Antarctica and I'm going to be studying diatoms. What is going on? But then I thought about it and I, I thought, well, isn't that the best way to do this? Because it's a, it's a subject that I'm not as strong in. And it's something that I'm not familiar with in terms of how to make it exciting for my students in the classroom. So wouldn't this be a way to learn how to do that? And that's exactly what I got out of it. Um, I love the experience. I lived on an icebreaker for six weeks, traveling around the Southern Ocean and learning about how oceanographers collect data on all sorts of different things related to water quality, trace metal chemistry, um, as well as phytoplankton research. And what I was able to do was turn that into, I think, more exciting lessons for my students about photosynthesis. Whereas I think in the past, I'd just been kind of like, here's photosynthesis. It's really important, but okay, we're moving on, you know, like, let's get to the other stuff I like. Um, but now I, I can show them firsthand some of the work that's being done. We can follow along with some of the research that's taking place in the labs. Um, and I learned a heck of a lot about where oceanographic science is going and and how we're using, you know, life science skills, how we're using DNA analysis, how we're using trace metal chemistry together to learn about how, the health of our oceans. So um, it was a really amazing experience. And, you know, I got to see some cool animals and stuff too. So I'm not, you know, I'm not going to lie. It, there was some personal um, reasons that I wanted to go, but when I really thought about it, um, it, it was a, an amazing way for me to take a subject that I wasn't necessarily as enthusiastic about teaching and turn it into a really great experience for myself and my students. Uh, it's, it's a great story. I, I was trying to think of the analogy for me because it was like, diatoms, cool. Yeah, I love it. Microbes, great. Um, <laughs> uh, I was there. But uh, it speaks to me in terms of um, how I talk about how I teach now so much through narrative. Mm -hmm. um, I've really gone away from 
traditional unit structure. Um, and I shouldn't say that I wholly have, because I would say if you came and looked at our honors bio curriculum, which I collaborate with on a, with, with a bunch of teachers, we still sort of have a more traditional eight unit curriculum that looks sort of a little bit more old school. But even within there, I always try to teach things through a narrative, through a story, mm -hmm. um, where I bring a topic in and in AP biology, um, we've completely gone to that model. So we do not teach in units at all. We have like right now we're, t we're in a unit looking at the microbiome. Um, mm -hmm. And the last unit we did was looking at um, antibiotic resistance. And I use that to teach things that don't s traditionally fall into that realm. So for example, mm -hmm. I'm teaching um, a microbiome and I showed uh, Bonnie Bassler's TED talk where she talks about quorum sensing. Mm -hmm. And I use that to teach signal transduction pathways in humans. Um, so how they produce a chemical and that chemical has a, you know, a ligand and a receptor and they bind and they, there's a communication piece there. It's just like cell communication in humans, right? but it's, it's in my wheelhouse. It's part of a story. It mm -hmm. ties to microbes. It's, it fits into all these other things that we're doing and it's part of a larger narrative that we're doing. Um, so this sort of tough abstract topic, which you can teach in like a million different ways. I'm teaching it in a story that makes a lot of sense to me mm -hmm. and ties to some other broader topics that um, help me pull in a variety of uh, conversations, including things like ecosystems and some health impacts and, and that sort of thing. Um, and uh, we're also doing some like water chemistry and, and diffusion and, and all sorts of other stuff that go <clears throat> into that same topic. Yeah. Um, so I think having something like, you know, being able to talk about the oceans and bring in this topic of photosynthesis is, is such a cool idea. Yeah. And I, I think it's, it, you know, when we, when we separate all of these topics into their own little, like, okay, the next topic we're going to talk about is this, that I, I think that students lose that connection. And so, yeah. um, you know, one of the, one of the researchers that I worked with, um, is actually looking at the ligand, like ligands, ligands. Oh, mm -hmm. now I, I used to have to practice it every day. Which one is it? You just said it. Ligands? I, say, I call them, li I call them ligands. Okay. All right. So, um, they're actually looking to see if there are, um, ligands available to capture iron because that's one of the um, limiting factors for mm. diatoms in the Southern ocean. And so, um, it, it just, it, it doesn't have to be this isolated, like this is photosynthesis. Like there's biology in there and there's, there's other things. And, and there's a whole slew of concepts that you can bring into that one um, area. And like you said, it's something that you tell a story that's um, something that you're familiar with and you feel comfortable with. And for me, it's a very different story. Um, and I, I think that's the beauty of, of teaching. I think that's something that we're still allowed to do is, um, <laughs> you know, bring our own passions in there in a way that can still get the content across. And, and I think as long as we still have that, um, that, you know, we're okay. So. Yeah, actually, I think I had a moment this winter when I was working on something and I, I, I wondered to myself, cause we've, we've cut down the number of units we used to do. Like we used to do all of these, I, I have something like 12 or 13 units in AP biology and we're down to like seven now. Um, cause we keep, now we've told narratives and we've told stories and we've chopped up the curriculum and it's in these smaller buckets. But I was, I was actually thinking to myself, I was like, I wonder how few units I could do and teach the entirety of the curriculum. And then I came to the conclusion, I said, I bet you I could do it with one. I bet you I could teach the entire year. I could hit every single learning objective teaching the microbiome, which again, personal passion for me. Um, I could design like 
12 different microbiome labs that hit major different topics um, and, and culminate with some independent research and do all that. And I could tie, depending on the microbes I talk about, I could basically teach a, teach a microbiology course that was an AP course. Like, mm -hmm. I think I, I could do it. And then I said to myself, I'll wait till Brian retires before I try to do that because I would, I think I would break my partner teacher who is, <laughs> who, who I love and is, is a, is game. Like he's, you, all I can say about him is that I've told, I told him two years ago, we have the super successful AP course that I wanted to blow up the course and totally resequence it. And he was like, okay. Um, so I don't want to break him completely. <laughs> yeah. You gotta, you gotta ease him into it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. But I think that sounds like an amazing um, concept and, that's exciting. Yeah. 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 And so, and the funny thing is, I bet you if you talk to my kids, they'll be like, that's all he talks about anyway, all year. That's <laughs> <laughs> like, I said it the other day when we were talking about the coronavirus, I was doing my little spiel about washing your hands. And one of my kids in the back said, and get your flu shot. And I was like, yep. <laughs> because that's something I say. I probably say that a hundred times a year in class. <laughs> hey, as long as they learn one thing, right? That's, yeah. you check, check your box. There you go. Yeah. But literally one of my kids in the back before I got to it had yelled that out because I said that like if you like if you want to have a, a vaccine for this thing that travels all around the world that makes all these people sick and and kills the elderly and immunocompromised and people with respiratory uh, diseases and you want to prevent the spread of that get your flu shot like we can do that <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I had done that whole spiel about two or three days ago and so I had a kid kids beating me to the punch the other day <laughs> <laughs> they're waiting for that moment they can throw that out every day yeah all right so uh let's let's transition into another one of your really cool experiences you've had the last couple of years and that was uh you were the Massachusetts teacher of the year which is just a, an amazing award and I know the kind of quality of, of teachers that we have like just in the sciences alone, let alone all of the other types of teachers that exist in Massachusetts um, to be awarded. That's it's, it's amazing. Um, how has that sort of impacted you since going through that process and, and, and receiving that award? Well, um, it, it was an eye opening experience for a number of different reasons. Um, first of all, it's, I mean, it was truly an honor. It was not something that I ever expected. And, you know, you kind of get this imposter syndrome of like, why am I even here? I, sh I shouldn't be here. And, and you really have to look at it as um, you are representing so many of the wonderful teachers across the state. And, and that's what I tried to think about as um, I took myself out to meet many of the other teachers of the year. Um, one of the great things about the program is that um, you are then put into a cohort with your fellow teachers of the year from every other state, territory, and the Department of Defense. Um, and you get to do professional development with them um, and travel to um, different events uh, that you learn from each other and you learn from other people. And so um, I, I'd say that the biggest impact on me, both personally and professionally, was getting an opportunity to build this professional network um, and to learn from each of these individuals who are not just science teachers. Um, they're, they're, you know, that's kind of where I think I, I spend a lot of my time is is learning from other science teachers. And this was an opportunity for me to really grow as a teacher um, in other areas. Uh, so one of the um, main topics that we focused on during my year um, was equity um, and, and starting to really think about what equity means um, and how, you know, implicit bias and, and other things affect my classroom and, and how, how it really impacts my students. And I'm not sure that that was something that, that I truly focused on in my classroom. Um, 
maybe not consciously. I didn't have a conscious thought about it, I would say. Um, and so that was really an opportunity for me to grow and I'm continuing to grow. So we've started um, with my cohort. There are a number of um, teachers in my cohort who we do um, book groups. Um, and many of those books are related to um, either forms of racism or other topics on equity. Um, I'm still finding out opportunities about conferences and other types of opportunities that I can um, uh, learn from and grow um, by attending. So this program um, really opened my eyes to what is possible as a teacher leader um, and and what what more I want to do um, in my teaching. So I don't just want to be in my classroom. I love being in my classroom, but I also want to be able to help other teachers in their practice. I want to be able to help other students. I want to learn from them. I want to go outside of even my school and be able to to connect with other educators. And I think that's really what it has brought to me is this desire um, to learn from as many people as possible about as many topics related to teaching as possible. So it's, it's really, it was really an incredible experience. It comes with a lot of perks too. You know, you get to go to the white house and you get to go to the college football championship game and things like that. Um, So there's, you know, that might actually be one of the other things is, in no other time period as a teacher have I been treated in a way that um, I was during this experience. Um, And I think that's unfortunate for teachers. I don't think enough teachers are, and not that everybody has to win an award, but that they are looked at at, in a professional way and in a, um, in, in sort of a, congratulatory way, if that makes any sense of what I'm trying to say. I think that a lot of times we don't, um, we don't celebrate our teachers as much as we could. And I think this was, um, opening in that sense as well. Yeah. I can think of some of the times when I've been at places where, you know, it's a professional conference of, of scientists or, or whatever like that. And I'm, you know, a teacher, who's there either part of a grant or something like that. And you see the sort of the professional nature by which the scientists are treated or, you know, different things like that. And you're like, Oh, okay. Um, (laughs) I remember working uh, one summer at a, basically at a a biotech area and I was running some workshops in there and it was like Thursday afternoon and in the lobby they had like, uh, like a jazz quartet and like cheese and beer that were just provided by the company, like as like a working perk for the workers, you know, <laughs> like, like uh, we want you to mingle and we want you to relax. We also wanted to say thank you. And we're, so we are, we're having a social hour from five to six and da, 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 if you want to stop in and listen to some music and chat with some of your colleagues and stuff like that. And I was like, Oh yeah, they, they, they don't do this in, um, in the school. They don't, we don't have like, you know, <laughs> cheese and beer and wine at a jazz quartet at like four o'clock on a Thursday so that we can unwind and, and just check in with our colleagues. Like we don't, we don't do that. Um, <laughs> we're lucky we get to go to the bathroom during the day, you know? So, um, yeah, that, and that, and you're, you're, you're talking about it exactly the way that, that I experienced it. It was, you know, uh, wait, I can have this drink for free or wait, I, I get this food for free. Like it was almost that like, what is happening here? I felt guilty about doing those things. And then I was like, you know what? I, every This is how it happens in every other profession. You know, everybody else is used to these things. Like these are the perks associated with being a professional. And I was like, well, then 
okay, I'm going to go ahead and, and take advantage of it. But I think with that also comes the, now you have some knowledge of the way things could be. And then you come back to your <laughs> no experience and you're like, oh, oh yeah, I do have to buy my own tissues. You know, that, that kind of thing. Like it, it's just one of those, you might know a little too much now. And, but then, it, then the, the task is like, well, what can you do to help make it that way? You know? And I, I think, I think that that's one of the, the hopes of the teacher of the year program nationwide is that you're, you're empowering teachers um, to think about ways to change the profession and to hopefully make it a more recognized profession in that way, you know, to, to, to make sure that those teachers are um, looked at as professionals and are treated um, the way they should be treated. Yeah. The other thing that sort of popped as you were telling your story is it, um, it reminded me of the idea of, teachers as leaders um, and and that you if you want to be a a leader in education that does not mean that you have to leave your classroom and become an administrator mm-hmm. that that people who spend 99% of their time interacting with students can still have leadership within a school and within the broader educational community. And it sounds like this program really was helping you grow those that leadership capacity, but without having to force you into a different role within education. Absolutely. And that's not to say, you know, there are many um, teachers in my cohort who now have moved out of the classroom um, onto different opportunities through the program. Um, and I, you know, that was not something that um, was that I was interested in. I'm still enjoying being in my classroom and I'm still enjoying spending my time with my students. They're going to impact teaching in different ways, which I think is amazing. And so I think that's the beauty of it is that you learn new opportunities uh, and, and you can do what you want with those. And that, and that's, that's pretty amazing to, um, to be able, and you know, you can also just stay in your classroom for the rest of your teaching career. I mean, right now, that right now, that's what I, what I think about, you know, I mean, I hope someday to also help um, pre-service teachers and, and work with them. Um, but I, I really do enjoy, I, I, you know, I never in my life, if you would have asked me in college, wanted to work with high school students, I would have said, heck no. Um, but I, I really enjoy it. I, I, my students are amazing and I, I love learning with them. So um this just has opened doors to ways that I can um, learn more from others and and also maybe increase my impact on the profession. Yeah, I I am I'm happy that that now is a possibility in a route. I felt like my first few years of teaching, the the message I was receiving as a young teacher was that like teaching was a stepping stone that if you were going to be in leadership, it meant that you had to leave the classroom. And I, I feel like over the last, you know, 10 to 15 years, uh, there has been an acknowledgement that no, that doesn't necessarily have to be the case. And, and there are a handful of programs that allow you to learn about how to be like present to adults and how to impact new teachers and mentor and do all of these other things. And to me, that's, that's refreshing because the best part of my day is the day, the part with the teenagers, like um, it's not being in meetings with adults. Um, right. right. <laughs> I, it's like, 
When I think of being an administrator, like, honestly, it sounds like hell. It's like the 10% of my job that I hate, the being in meetings with other adults, like, no, no, I like the kids. (laughs) Exactly. I like to be able to close my door and not have to deal with the adults, right? Um, Yeah. yeah, And I I think districts are benefiting from um, encouraging teacher leadership as well of teachers that are still in their classroom. I mean, you know, administration is great. And and if that's something that you want to do go for it. Cause I don't mm-hmm. want to be there, but, but that limits, you know, that's, that's such a small number of teachers that then are playing a role in what we traditionally think of as leadership. And so if districts are starting to welcome teachers, um, having roles outside of their classroom, um, but still being a benefit to their students, I, I think it can only help the district because you're now increasing, how many teachers have knowledge of these other programs and how many teachers are interested in, you know, mentoring and doing all that stuff you talked about. So I, I, I think the more teacher leaders you can have in your district, just the more benefit you have from it. Yeah. All right. So uh, sort of in this theme of, of things that have impacted your teaching, one of the things I always tell people is I always internet stalk everybody a little bit um, <laughs> when we start talking about this. And one of the things I came across for you was a, a short podcast you were in, uh, mm-hmm. a call leading from the classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, I didn't know what I was getting into. And then I listened to it and it happened to be all about how being a foster parent has impacted you as an educator. So again, talk about like finding something and going, oh, this had nothing to do with what I thought we were planning. But I was like, <laughs> got to tell me more. You had four minutes on this. So there, yeah. but I'm, I'm curious, what, what was it? Uh, what has it been like as a foster parent? And how has that shifted maybe some of your classroom perspective? Sure. Um, so that was actually the first time I ever recorded for a podcast. And they told us you have a write down what you were going to say. And I was like, I don't even think that's a podcast. Like what? I thought we were going to talk about it. So um, yeah, it's a little rough. But anyway, um, I uh, welcomed um, eight-year-old twin girls into my home um, as a foster parent. Um, In fact, during the same year that I was traveling for um, Massachusetts Teacher of the Year, I'm not sure that I um, would recommend that to anyone, but uh, it, it opened my eyes in so many ways. You know, I chose, I, I looked into being a foster parent. I don't have biological children of my own and, um, I have always wanted to be a parent and I thought, well, you know, this could be a way that I could still have children in my home and maybe have an impact on their lives in some way. Um, and what I found was that they probably impacted me more than I could even have helped them. Um, they were with me for a year. Um, and in that year, Uh, I learned a lot about how trauma impacts a child um, in ways that we may not anticipate and that we may not see in school. And I I think that was really one of the big eye-openers was um, seeing children at home um, and how their day impacts their life at night and how their life at night when they come home from school impacts their day at school. And although you can read about it and you can Um, have people tell you about the impacts of trauma. It really took seeing it and seeing the struggles um, that they went through, whether it was with school or with, you know, interpersonal relationships or with just regulating their behavior um, and how watching that here in my home, when I would go to school the next day, I was like, oh, that student is also struggling with that same thing with regulating or with dealing with something that's going on outside of this room. I guess I always kind of still had that mentality of like, you know, what happens in Miss P's class stays in Miss P's class or or what happens outside stays outside and that is not the way that we can look at this. We have to think about how everything that this child is experiencing can impact their education and you know, I I feel sort of 
ridiculous saying that it took that long for me to figure that out, but it really, I needed that eye-opening personal experience to see it. And it's really, I, I think it has changed the way that I interact with my students and the way I think about, um, you know, how we handle things that happen in the classroom on a regular basis. Yeah, I I think of I I worked with a, an alternative program for many many years where we had some kids who had, you know, the word trauma is the right word, uh, and a variety of different ways outside of the the school. And these were this was sort of the the worst case scenario. These were kids who could not function in a regular school day anymore, and wow. as a result, were in an alternative program. Mm-hmm. And we had, you know, we have a, a psychologist who works with them, like you know, a small cohort of students and meets with them. And there's, it's a very, it's intended to be a transitional program, but it's also a therapeutic program mm-hmm. um, sort of within a larger district. It's a benefit of being a larger district is to have something like this. And then you'd go to larger meetings with other educators who didn't work with this cohort. And they would say things about, you know, providing extra time for things or extensions or, or that sort of thing. Um, for students and they wouldn't necessarily bring the level of empathy that I wanted to bring to the situation because we had a different knowledge of some of the struggles students have outside of school. Um, And it made me ask more questions as opposed to jumping to like, Oh, this student's just being lazy or uh, this student's looking for an out. I think that's, that's a word. That's a phrasing I hear a lot. Um, This kid's abusing the system. Um, and I don't want to say that there's no kid who abuses the system. Um, sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I have, I, have, I have a kid. Yeah. Yeah. I have, I have a kid in my AP class and it is like a running joke that he, he's out on assessment days. Like it's, it's like to the point where like, if I make a statement about people not being there or being there, people turn and look at him. Like, it's a running joke. Now, this is a highly functioning student, but he has a history of missing some some days um, on that. And not to the point where it's a major, major thing, but that's it. But we're not talking about him. Um, but the, you don't always know every kid's background and history. And and even those kids in those honors and AP classes, there's kids who are um, exceptionally high functioning in spite of the struggles they have outside of the building. Sure, sure. And, and, you know, I, I looked at it, you know, I saw it through the eyes of, of young children who had definitely had trauma in their lives. But I I think we also need to realize that everybody has bad days and everybody is dealing with something. And, and sometimes I think we overlook that, you know, yes, we can identify foster children or children that we know have had some sort of trauma previously in life. But, you know, there are days that, I'm upset and can't deal with my emotions. And and we have to, we have to just be human about the fact that like, yes, for a high school student breaking up with, you know, your significant other is, is impactful on their lives. And so how do we, how do we find a way to help them and not just say like, give up on education today, but how do we find that way to make them feel comfortable with, you know, dealing with that situation, but also learning. And I I think that's really challenging because we could just say like, oh, that doesn't matter. Time to talk about, you know, genetics, Um, but it does matter and and it it matters to them. And that's what they're going to be focused on at that time. So I, I really think it's, it's important for us to recognize that and, and not necessarily, you know, just give up on teaching, but for the day, but, but don't give up on them because they're having that bad day, I think is the way to look at it. 
Yeah, and it may be that like your empathy with them on that one given day or that relationship component ends up paying a huge dividend down the line for this kid because they yeah. now know that oh, I I'm now I now realize I'm not in a traumatic place now. Oh, I need to go extra for extra help. You know, they're going to have good days too. Like it, every day is not a bad day. So Absolutely. giving them that extra space on the bad day will actually helps them be better on their good days. Yep, I totally agree and I I've seen it with my students. I mean, just yeah. giving them that little that little bit of empathy I think really really helps them. Yeah, I have like as you're telling you this, I had like vignettes of faces of kids I've had in the past. Everything from uh, the girl who came to me the day she got into Princeton and she didn't expect to, and she was t supposed to take a test, and she walked up to me, and I had this girl for a couple of years, and she came up and she's like. I don't know what to say, but I got into Princeton last night and I didn't expect it, but I could, I haven't been able to do anything for the last few hours. So I didn't study for this test. And I was like, and I was like, I was, like, it's a funny story, but like for her, she kind of came to grips with the fact that like, she kind of went to a different planet for 20 hours yeah. because yeah. of, of great news, like not, not trauma. Oh, yeah. <laughs> But like she yeah. came in and she's like, oh, I'm not prepared for this test that we're about to take. And it's an AP test. And I'm going to like totally. And she didn't like so she came to me and she was like open and honest. At the same time, I can remember phone calls from a, a mom who was calling me um, because uh, I had this girl in class. Again, phenomenal student ended up going on uh, to, to college and being enormously successful in med school today. Um, kind of sort of I think maybe speaks to how I know the family and, and the community. Um, but uh, her, her father uh, had an unexpected uh, medical incident during that year and she was struggling with that that entire year while while trying to come to school and yeah. it was very traumatic it was very sudden it was very unexpected and the mom called me on a day of a on a day of a test and was like she's going to try to come in and take this she did not sleep last night she has mm -hmm. not been sleeping all week she's going to she's trying to force herself through this and try to make her she's trying to make her life feel normal by going wow. through but she's not in a good place please stop yeah. her from taking this test um yeah. and i was like okay yeah. So I, you know, I pulled her aside and it was hard because I pulled her aside. And as soon as I pulled her aside, she burst into tears, this quiet, yeah. sensitive kid who just wants to please and just wants to do well. Um, right. Again, she has the, she had enormous support outside. And now you think of, okay, so these are the kids I knew about. Mm -hmm. What about all the kids who don't have that supporting adult at home who yeah. to call or to email or to do that, or who have a parent at home who's just like, yeah, rough, tough, you know, you can get through this. You just yeah. be tough. And yeah. some kids that's the right advice and some kids it's not. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, every, every child is going to be different in that sense, like you were saying. And, and so I think it's just important for us to be aware that, that it is different for everyone and that we can, we can just take a step back and, and figure out what's best for that student, you know, at that time. So, yeah. All right. Well, before we get to questions for me and, and, and picks and that sort of thing, what are you looking forward to in your classroom in the next few years? Um, I'm looking forward to, I really am, am interested in moving to more of a project-based learning type of idea. Um, just really giving students an opportunity to explore these, these topics more on their own um, and explore 
topics within content that interests them. So kind of like the whole, you know, Polar Trek thing. I wasn't necessarily interested in that photosynthesis idea, but I grew to be interested in it. But maybe through project-based learning, you know, students can can zone in on something that they find interesting and help it'll help them learn more content that way. Um, I, I've been doing a little bit more of that in my zoology classes because they're not standards-based. I'm still trying to figure out how to do that. And so that's one of my goals is to to really start to do some training in that and to figure out how I can make that more prominent in my classroom. Yeah. Electives are a great sandbox. Um, <laughs> they really are. <laughs> They're wonderful for that. Yeah. All right. Well, when you're not teaching, you clearly don't have any spare time. So this is always my ridiculous question for <laughs> super high achieving teachers who like don't seem to have any time. But when you are not teaching, what do you like to do? Uh, well, I love spending time with my dog. Um, I have a rescue coon hound named Sadie and, um, we love exploring. We have, um, some, um, local parks right near our house that, um, we hike in. Uh, I just, I love being outdoors. So, um, if I can walk anywhere, that's what we do. I love to read. Um, I also love to listen to audiobooks. So at any given time, I might be listening to a book while I'm driving to and from work, but then also reading a book at home. I also am taking some classes right now. So I've got those books going. Um, and yeah, um, I love national parks. So for a while I haven't been able to um, get to a national park, but I believe right around the time um, that this episode airs, I will be in Utah um, going to Arches National Park. So I haven't been to um, a national park in probably about three years because life's been a little crazy, but, um, I am so looking forward to just relaxing a little bit, doing some hiking and, um, seeing what's out there in nature. Um, it's a place I've never been before. So. Neat. Yeah. As a, as somebody who has a, uh, rescue dog myself, we talked about our, our dogs and the problematic, the way they can mess up recordings before we started recording. Uh, yes. Yeah, a lot of this resonates with me, and as I both I both have been reading, and I am also an avid book uh, audiobook person. Um, I use the the uh, library app that I have um, I to, to download there. So um, check out your library um, because I actually have a Boston Public Library uh, digital library card that you can apply mm -hmm. for, mm -hmm. um, and from that, then you can take out using an app called uh, I think it's called Libby. Um, uh, you can download books and audiobooks from the library. Yeah. And I use, um, overdrive, which is basically the same thing. Yes. So my library uses overdrive and, um, while, you know, they may not have every book audiobook. I mean, I've, I've really been enjoying it and I, I think it helps with my, um, road rage a little bit because <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm like listening to the book and I'm into it. And, and I, I think it keeps me calmer on my commute, which is, which is probably a good thing. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what you're talking about. Boston driving is totally, totally normal. Nothing, oh, yeah. nothing. Absolutely. Crazy. Especially yeah. at seven o'clock in the morning. Totally. Yeah. As it took me uh, 84 minutes to drive the 20 miles from Acton into the Boston Museum of Science the other day. Um, uh, see, I, <laughs> I got to take the T. That was the one good thing. So, yeah, yeah. I, I had tempted to. So for us, we could have driven to Alewife and then taken the T in from there. But it's it's long. Um, it <laughs> might have been faster. Um, but it, it's actually not easy and there's like some train adjustments and I, I had a, a seven kids with me. So there was like a lot of things to juggle um, and it rained the morning we drove in there. So like, yeah, it, I, remember. <laughs> yeah I, I was, but so I was like looking at the app, I was looking at the traffic going in that like three or four days leading in and I had plenty of time. 
plenty mm-hmm. of time, plenty of time, plenty of time. And then that morning it rained. So like literally all that time vanished and it was, yeah. we got there on time, but it was like, we needed every second. I often find that the rain just, I don't know why it just messes everything up. So, but yeah, yeah that morning was pouring. <laughs> All right. Um, so before we get to picks of the episode, do you have any questions for me? Well, I actually was just wondering, um, do you find that your students listen to your podcasts and do they ever ask you questions or like talk to you about some of the teachers that you interview? So um, the answer is I always have like I would say it comes up probably two or three times a year that a kid will like specifically ask me if I have a podcast or I downloaded your podcast or I listened to your podcast. If it comes up like fairly infrequently that we discuss like any details about it, um, okay. but but students do talk to me a lot about the network of teachers because I I mention a lot of other teachers in there and I get papers from a lot of other teachers. Like, for example, just yesterday, uh, the activity I was using, um, I had uh, Desi Demova, who's a teacher in New Jersey. Um, I, the activity I got was hers. Um, and I know Desi. Desi and I have been friends for a few years. We go running together when we go to the AP Read. Um, and so like, I came across activities when I was starting to build my curriculum for a unit, and I had seen something she had written. And I was like, oh, so I texted her and then I took it and I modified it a little bit and I put her name, I gave her credit on the bottom mm-hmm. of the document. So um, I will say probably about you know a, a handful of times when I'm having sort of small conversations with groups, students will ask me about like other teachers I know or, or various other things like that. Um, and I talk to them about the nature of having like a professional network Mm -hmm. Um, and regardless of what you do and how that works. So usually um, when the podcast comes up, that's how I pivot the conversation. (laughs) And, and, but I I do have that broader conversation about a professional network even more often Um, and how like, regardless of what you do, like, and, and I also send my kids out to job shadows um, Mm -hmm. where they go out and they visit. So my AP kids, every single AP kid goes on a job shadow, which this year means we had 125 kids who've been scheduling, uh, to go out and do these things, which is, uh, an enormous, an enormous feat every year for us to, to juggle and do that. But that's again, another one of those things where I talk about how, you know, you, you have a professional network and, and that is part of how you are a professional, (laughs) um, Mm -hmm. particularly in science. Like, you're not expected to come up with everything on your own. And so sometimes you ask your colleagues who know things questions. And when you run a lab and it doesn't work, then you then go, all right, well, why didn't this work? Who do I know who runs this, um, who runs something like this? And um, and I think I, I very much embody that uh, both in my sort of personal life and my professional practice. And I'm very transparent to my students about stuff like that. So I tell them, oh, th- I got this idea from this teacher I know for, in Georgia. Like, mm-hmm. You know, Bob, there's this guy named Bob Kuhn. You'll never meet him, but he's awesome. And he's in Georgia. <laughs> and and we were, we were chatting about something online and it made me think of this. And then he shared this with me. And so this is what came out of this as a result. And I often tell the backstory about how we get to some of the things we do. Um, yeah, that's great. That's great. I'm glad it's a conversation builder for that. That's really awesome. Yeah. Well, and they also like every once in a while call me out. I think it's just to, to try to distract me. They're like, <laughs> like, you know, um, how did you get involved with blah, blah, blah? Like, you know, we, cause I do, I do a lot of things. I don't say no to a lot of things. I do say no to some things. I just, for the record, I do say no when people ask me to do things. Uh, but I, I say yes to a lot of things and it provides opportunities. So like, 
you know, I, I we earlier this year I had talked about it on a previous podcast. We did this this ladybug project where we used ladybugs as a model organism for this thing going on in the Sierra Nevadas. And everybody else involved in this project is in California. Like the researchers are in, you know, the Santa Clara and at Stanford and um and uh at uh Pomona State and uh teachers down in LA. And there, so there's like seven members of the team and six of them are in California and me. Um, <laughs> and so the kids will go like, how did you get involved in this project? And I was like, well, I got an email from the person in Berkeley and I said, and if you need teachers who are working on this project, let me know. Mm -hmm. And so when they got to the curriculum building part of the project, they reached out and said, do you want to be part of this? And I was like, sure. Um, and then, you know, building things, I love to build curriculum. And so we did it and we tried it. And I'll be honest, several of the things I tried completely failed. Um, and now as I'm saying this, I'm realizing I learned some things this year that make me want to go back and revisit um, what we tried. So like, you know, those are, it's a constant process of learning for me. And the way I learn is I learn from other people because they have information that I don't have. And so by having a network, you, you're better at being you. Absolutely. Um, so. I, I totally agree with that. And that's, you know, like I said, that I've, I've built an incredible network recently and I have great coworkers and I just keep meeting more teachers from all these experiences that, like you said, you, you just, oh, I know somebody who would be great at that. Like, you don't, again, you don't have to always reinvent the wheel, although there's nothing wrong with that either, but, but you can learn from other people and, and tweak it to what you need and, and what will work for you. So that's great. I love it. Yeah. I, I was just actually thinking that um, as I was saying that I got a message just the other day from uh, previously mentioned Bob Kuhn, where he was asking me, I had posted something online and he sent me a private message, like asking me like a little, a little tiny background question, but it was like the start of what could be like a giant conversation that we'll proceed oh, cool. to have over the next few years. And things like that happen all the time um, mm -hmm. when you have a network of people and you are, you know, as David Konefke will say, has you have a low threshold for sharing. Um, <laughs> so I try to make sure that I'm good about sharing uh, something I'm doing every month online of like, here's an image of something my kids are doing more, not so much in a braggy kind of way, but more of a, Hey network, this is something I'm doing. Like check in with me if, <laughs> if you have yeah, questions or absolutely. that. And I do the same thing. I ask people for follow-up on some things because I want to hear what they're doing. Um, and that's how we learn is by asking people questions. Totally. I love it. That's great. All right. So now we're at picks of the episode. Kara, what's your pick? Well, I, you know, it's funny because when people ask me like, what's a great resource? I swear I use a million and 10 great resources every single day. And then it's like, oh, what's a great resource? Um, so uh, being that we talked a little bit about Polar Trek, and I know that there are Polar Connects that will be coming up. Um, the Polar Connect is a pretty cool resource because it is live video. Um, sometimes it's just satellite phones, um, but you're talking with the teachers and researchers who are working together on their expedition. So um, for instance, I did a live video from the... Um, from the middle of the Southern Ocean on the icebreaker during my Polar Trek experience. And so these are upcoming now that now that we're moving into um, the latter part of our winter, it's the latter part of the Antarctic summer. And so there are teachers that are in Antarctica right now who are um, sharing their research, um, sharing their experience. And these happen year round and they're also archived. Um, so you can really find um, 
teachers that have done Polar Connects on a number of different topics. It's not just life science because I'm a life science teacher. Um, There are, you know, ones on um, geography, physics. um, There's Ice Cube at the South Pole when they're looking for neutrinos. I don't even know what the heck is going on there, but um, it's cool to listen to them. And it's it's put together by the teacher. So it's oftentimes um, done in a way, and, and this is part of the goal of having teachers and researchers together of having the science made, you know, like put out in a way that is understandable to the public, because sometimes scientists talk a lot of science and, and it's hard to really understand what they're talking about. And so teachers sometimes have a way of dialing that down a little bit um, to helping the public understand. So I oftentimes um, do these polar connects either live or um, I look at the archives with my students because I love, again, we, we talked about this earlier. I don't know everything and I can't possibly know everything about science, but here are some people who are actually studying these things and let's hear from them. Um, and a lot of times you get to see cool pictures and cool video from their experiences as well. Neat. Yeah. And there's a, if you look on this, there's some amazing stuff that's up here for, in the archives and pages and pages of archives. It looks like at least nine pages of archives of videos. So lots and lots of stuff. Yeah. And also just on the Polar Trek website, every educator has to produce at least two lesson plans about their topic. So um, I'd say Polar Trek in general is a great resource um, for lots of different types of um, science topics um, in terms of hearing from the researchers themselves and also the different lesson plans that have been created. Neat. All right. Well, that looks like a great resource. I'll have to check some of those out because I I think a couple of those may, a couple of those topics fit nicely into some things where I I know I have some curriculum gaps. So um, that's neat. All right. Well, mine is a a little bit more self-serving, but not necessarily. And it's funny because we we were talking before we came on that we realized we were in the same room together before (laughs) we had talked to each other um, uh, back at the Museum of Science, as I previously mentioned. Um, I've been involved with BioBuilder for years, and I've talked about it uh, many times. And uh, tis the time of year to register for summer workshops. And so there is actually a uh, summer workshop. So when this comes out, it's actually going to be right after the early bird pricing (laughs) uh, spike. Uh, for for the workshops, but uh, they run summer workshops. Um, there's one in late June. There's a couple in August. I actually know there's one in late June that goes into July. Um, and so there's four or five of these that are going to run this summer. And so I've put a link to the BioBuilder summer workshops for you to learn. And and for people who don't know, um, BioBuilder is a synthetic biology curriculum designed for high school uh students and teachers. And uh, the workshops are run by people like me, because I think I'll be in Maryland this summer <laughs> running uh, running this with actually a former student of mine, believe it or not, who was a oh, high school cool. student of mine. The kid who came to me when he was a sophomore in high school and said, do you know anything about synthetic biology? Um, and I was like, yeah, because I had just spent two summers learning about synthetic biology at MIT right before that. Um, and so he's like, can we start a, a club? And so I helped him start the club and he was a leader f- for his junior and senior year. And then he went off to college and got a degree in uh, synthetic biology and was part of iGEM teams there. And now he's a PhD candidate in synthetic biology. Um, and the two wow. of us are... And the two of us are going to co-teach this workshop this summer um, down in Maryland um, at the end of June, beginning of July. So, um, But there are several other workshops. There's going to be one in Illinois. There's going to be one in Cambridge. Um, and so if you're interested in the interface between engineering and biology, uh, you should check these out. And um, I think it's it's really good value. And I will say for me, the biggest thing of being involved with uh, this is that um, I am a scientist. Um, I don't think like an engineer. Um, but I have students who think like engineers. Um, 
And I honestly think I did them a disservice before I understood engineering mindset. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way I learned how engineers think was by doing BioBuilder because it's using biological principles to, to teach engineering um, and or biological systems to teach engineering principles. That's a better way of saying it. Um, and I can actually remember the moment that I was in Natalie's lab. Um, it was either 2012 or 2013. And I was in her lab and we were working on this system that's now a lab. It's called the Vita Yeast Lab. Um, and we were working on the system of that lab. And I had just done PCR for the first time I'd ever run it was in her lab and we saw the answers on the gel of what was going on in the system. And I was like, Oh, cool. Like we figured this out. And she's like, no, now we can start. <laughs> yeah. And so I was doing science and she was doing engineering. Like yeah. I was trying to answer a question and she wanted to find a solution for the problem. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. these yeast were doing this thing that was weird. And I was approaching it like, huh, I wonder what this weird thing is. And I answered that question with the gel, like the, right. p- ran the PCR and ran the gel and I could visibly see, and I could see the pattern. I could see the bands and I kn- knew the answer. And so my answer was like, cool, we're done. And she was like, no, now that we know what the problem is and we know what the cause is, we can fix it. We can build a solution. We can engineer a solution to this problem. And it was at that moment I was like, oh, this is the difference between science and engineering. Um, So uh, if you want to try out some kits that are designed and have been vetted and tested, and nearly all of these workshops are a combination of, usually it's three people she brings into the room. Um, Usually it is a a college professor. Um, It's usually, or a a graduate college student. Um, It's a a classroom teacher. Um, And and then usually uh, somebody else who's like usually a synthetic biology uh, expert or an expert in some aspect of engineering and they come together and they collaboratively teach this and teach different aspects of it. So my job will be to be the classroom translation. I will run all the labs. I will um, do a couple of classroom based activities that will help you like intro into the concepts or topics or provide a few opportunities of, of things that students would do hands-on um, in the classroom. And then the other two you know, professionals in the room, um, graduate students and, and engineers and that sort of stuff, they'll talk about it from sort of the, the background side of it. And we'll go deeper on that background to fill in information for you. So That's, that's a great professional development right there. You get yeah. not just the teaching side of it, but you get to hear from some of the professionals um, in the field. That's really awesome. Yeah. And I, I will say, I have no idea. So I've run one of these workshops in the past and I ran it with Natalie, which is always kind of weird. Like, oh yeah, I'm running this workshop with the like creator of this program. <laughs> um, but, but but Natalie and I are like legit old friends. Like I've been working with her for now almost a decade and uh, and think of her as a dear friend. Like when we saw each other, we were talking about our kids. Um, like I asked, <laughs> like that kind of thing. Like that's where we started our conversation. Um, and so we're just, you know, we go back and, and, and I've had all these experiences and I've learned so much from her. Um, I don't know what it's going to be like to teach with a former student of mine. Like that's going to be interesting and weird and kind of awesome. So, uh, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. Yeah, And he's been, yeah. And he's been mentoring my, 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 uh, BioBuilder club this year, which is like very surreal. Like he's helping my current students with their projects, uh, for BioBuilder. Um, that is such a great story. I love it. Yeah. So, and again, like I legitimately can say to the kids in front of you, you are in this room because of this person. Like he is, he is the person who came to me and said, he wasn't even my student. He was another honors student. He was another teacher. And he went to his teacher and said, do you know anything about synthetic biology? He's like, no, you should go talk to Mr. Matthew. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, 
And so I eventually had Chris as a student in AP biology, but, um, and I, but I had him for two years in the club and like, like that's literally the background of why we have a, a biobuilder club in our school. So that's really cool. That's yeah. that. I think that will really be a, an amazing experience then to come full circle in that way. So that's great. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for joining me so much. I, this has been a great conversation. I've really enjoyed it. I've learned a lot myself and that's always one of the benefits of talking with other teachers is um, just the opportunity to hear about their stories and, and learn from them. So it's really been great. And um, I thank you for contacting me. Yeah. And I guess this is sort of the sign of how big and small the world is like, you know, here we are, um, you know, both fairly uh, accomplished, decorated teachers who, who teach uh, what maybe you know, by car, like, well, maybe four hours apart by car, but not that far distance wise. I think our schools are within 30 minutes of e- or 30 miles of each other um, and like never see each other. We were in the same room together, didn't talk to each other, <laughs> but uh, I'm glad we got a chance to connect here because it was, uh, I got a ton out of this and, and it was a lot of fun. Um, so yeah, next time. And, yeah. and now we'll know. And, you know, I'll, I'll maybe find you on the Saturday at NSTA if you end up there. So we'll. Uh, yes. We'll figure it out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If NSDA happens. Um, and if not, yeah. I am certain we will be in the room together at other times. And now that we are connected on Twitter, we will see each other. <laughs> I know that we're there at those places. So, so whenever uh, I see you doing something cool, I'll definitely ask you about it so I can try to figure out how to incorporate it myself. <laughs> All right. Well, let me give my credits for the episode. Uh, you can subscribe to Life of the School on your podcast player of choice. Uh, please do so. Um, Patreons, if you would like to ship in a buck a month or two for this episode, uh, you can go to patreon.com slash lots and uh, on Patreon I always release my episodes usually a couple days early for them and I also post my show notes up there. Show notes are also put on lifeofthe-school.org. Music on this and every episode is provided by uh, ex-magicians and Jake Jenkins another former student of mine um, and you can follow me on Twitter at Mr. Matthew Tweets or at Life of the School. You can follow Kara at Ms. Pekarsik P-E-K-A R-C-I-K. And I will put that in my show notes for you if you'd like to follow her. So thanks for joining me and I will talk to everybody soon.